Listen now to the Word of God. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So reads the word of God. Three weeks ago, I opened saying that Revelation 10 and 11, this interlude surrounding the seventh trumpet, that they belong together, just like Revelation 8 and 9 and like Revelation 4 and 5, the one being the seven seals, the other the, 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 the throne room, the, then Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches. We'll find that that's also the case in the two chapters to come, Revelation 12 and 13 hang together. I said on that day that we would handle these chapters, 10 and 11, separately, just as we did with each of those other couplings and will with the couplings that still remain. 
but we'll work hard to help them hang together in our minds, especially this time when they're, the two parts are, are three weeks apart. You see the slide on the screen reminding you of where we are in the flow of Revelation. It doesn't look like there's much left, but we're really hitting the halfway part today. Chapter 11 out of 22. And we said in the title of chapter 10 that uh, that was the opening of a new interlude, much like we saw back in chapter 7 between the sixth and seventh seals. Now we see one between the sixth and seventh trumpets. But this one between the sixth and seventh trumpet is just a bit different. There's some real notable similarities, but it's a bit different as well. That one focused on promise and praise and protection, if you remember. That was the focus before slitting that seventh seal. It was intended to undergird the assurance of, of God's people in tribulation. This interlude has three similar but, but different emphases. And we showed this to you last time as well. First, it declares the certainty and nearness of the end. Second, it reaffirms and extends John's commission to prophesy, and we saw both of those in chapter 10. And now this third emphasis comes in chapter 11. It clarifies the church's call to bear witness to Christ in times of tribulation. So in other words, chapters 10 and 11 are, are getting us situated they're getting us set up for what follows. And what follows begins before today's chapter ends. So we'll see a significant move toward the next stage of this book as chapter 11 draws to a close. Here in chapter 11, we finish the setting of the seventh trumpet. That's why I've got such a creative title uh, this morning to my message, The Setting of the Seventh Trumpet. Then we'll hear that trumpet sounded, and we'll see what begins to happen at that point. As one commentator wrote, in fact, as many commentators have written, I'm just quoting one of them, Leon Morris, this morning, this chapter is extraordinarily difficult to interpret and the most diverse solutions have been proposed. But there are two primary, and we'll come back to that because we have to be reminded this is not an easy text to handle, all right? So we're going to try to see through some of the difficulty to what's at the heart of the passage in order to appreciate it and be encouraged by it. But we have to acknowledge that it's difficult. I was talking with somebody about this this week, and he said, in order to understand Revelation 11, you got to go deep into the weeds. But then in order to go into the pulpit, you got to come back out of the weeds so that we can have something that we can appreciate and, uh, and uh, take with us as we go today. And so I, I feel like I've been to the weeds and back, um, and that's referring to more than just the Northwoods of Wisconsin. So, there are two primary approaches among premillennialists. So I'm not going to try to give the range of options of interpreting Revelation 11 this morning. And in a little later, I actually consider giving you a list of the options with regard to these two witnesses. And it just, it wouldn't be helpful, I don't think. You can read about that anywhere. But let me give you a couple of approaches that are taken to chapter 11 among premillennialists. Some take these images that we read here literally. If you take them literally um, in an unqualified way, this requires belief in a literal temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem and two literal witnesses appearing and preaching in the streets. Most often they are believed to be Moses and Elijah for reasons we'll acknowledge in just a few minutes. Whether literally like when those two appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he could certainly do that. Or whether it's Moses and Elijah symbolically, not unlike when Jesus said that, that John the Baptist is Elijah who came to prepare the way before him. 
So Scripture itself gives us the setting where these could either be two prophets returned or symbolic of something else or someone else. Which are they? That's one approach, taking things very literally. Others see a more symbolic meaning to these passages or to these images in this passage. Most commonly by understanding the temple in verse 1 as the church and the two witnesses in verses 3 through following then are some subset of the church that suffer persecution for their witness to the gospel. The great city is, is usually the fallen world order, generally speaking, mainly Rome in John's day, but also Babylon in, in history. You heard that some of that in Jeremiah 32. Um, but essentially, all that's opposed to God and will be destroyed in the end, that's the great city. We'll see chapters 17 and 18, another coupling uh, describing that city, the city of Babylon standing for the fallen world order. It's not just that city that's, that is um, offensive to God. It is all godless government and all godless life. But we'll get to that in due course. I believe John intended his readers to see these images as symbolic of great realities that are recurring and escalating as world history and especially redemption history advances. That doesn't mean they don't have a literal meaning. I believe they do. In fact, I believe that there will be an ultimate and final literal fulfillment of everything we read in this chapter that comes in the end. But I think when we force it to suggest that that's the only meaning we are supposed to take from Revelation 11, it cuts us off prematurely and actually robs us from seeing the meaning of the text and why it's written in the style that it's written in, why it's apocalyptic. If there were just two witnesses, if Moses and Elijah were supposed to come back, we could say Moses and Elijah are coming back and they're going to preach in the streets of Jerusalem and they're going to get killed, but God's going to raise them up again. It's not the way John talks about it. So have to pick up and understand what the text is saying, why it's written in the style that it's written in, and what we're supposed to learn from that. So, I believe John has intended his readers to see these images as symbolic of great realities that are recurring and escalating throughout world history, and especially throughout redemption history, just as has been the case throughout this letter from the beginning. But I also believe we'll see an ultimate, final, literal fulfillment of these images in the end, and that moves us into the text itself. So let's look now at chapter 11 in its three thematic parts, and you'll see those listed in your bulletin. That'll be my outline this morning. Uh, the measuring of the temple in verses 1 and 2, then the ministry of the two witnesses in verses 3 through 14, and then the sounding of the seventh trumpet in verses 15 through 19. Let me tell you in advance, there's no way to comment on everything that is in Revelation 11. You'll get that hint as we move through it. So the things that I'm hitting on are the things that I believe will be most helpful to us in understanding this text. But there is much more we could dig into and find out why. Why Sodom and Egypt, for instance? What's going on with that? Um, but we're going to hit the things that I think will be helpful to us in a, um, in a sermon of, uh, of endurable length. How about that? Right. So let's begin with the measuring of the temple in verses 1 and 2. The first hint that John intends us to th see these things as symbols comes as we hear the opening words of this chapter. We hear him being instructed to, verse 1, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, the people. How do you measure people? <laughs> the ways that we're used to measuring people, people don't generally want to be measured. So what's, what, what's the charge to measure the people? But then he goes on to say that the part that he's not supposed to measure is not measured for a reason. That's what helps us know the reason for the measuring. Is because he's not supposed to measure some. Verse 2, 
He doesn't measure outside of that temple complex because it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This confirms that John is speaking symbolically. It's like a parable that he's telling. Surely John isn't being sent to determine the dimensions of the temple or the number or the sizes of those who worship there. Measuring in the Old Testament symbolizes some clear things. It symbolizes assessment either for judgment or for protection. And there are many examples of each with regard to measuring being a measuring for judgment, you've got passages like 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Kings 21 and Amos 7 and Isaiah 34 and Lamentations 2. That's why we're not going to dig into each one of those passages to see the background. But the background, once again, for a difficult metaphor, is set in Scripture itself. We can see Old Testament passages talking about measurement for protection. Again, 2 Samuel 8, Ezekiel 40 and 42, Zechariah 2. And there's much imagery from the prophet Zechariah that comes into Revelation 11. Here, it is obviously for protection that the temple and the altar and those who worship there are being measured. Because we're told, don't measure those outside They've been given over to be trampled by the nations. So it's the judgment that's going to fall outside of this measured area, and the measured area is for protection. It's keeping the promise of the seal of the living God that was issued back in chapter 7. No harm will come to these, my people. So they're being measured off so that as this tribulation escalates... They have the hand of God upon them. Greg Beale presses this point even further, saying that this measuring is not just protection, but is also a promise of God's nearness to His people as the end approaches. There's an, an intimacy and tenderness and love to the protection that's being offered here in this image. Listen to what Beale wrote. I don't usually give you this long a quote, but I found this helpful. He wrote, the faith of his people will be upheld by his presence, speaking of God, since without faith there can be no divine presence. No aberrant theological or ethical influence will be able to spoil or contaminate their true faith or worship. That's what it's, his presence and protection are bringing. No aberrant theological or ethical influences will be able to spoil or contaminate their true faith or worship. And if you know from, if you've ever read much of Greg Beale, you know he's got a mountain of passages of Scripture that build up and draw these conclusions. Continuing on in his quote, in chapter 11, this means that the promises of God's eschatological presence begins with the establishment of the Christian community. Do you hear that? I, I, I'm sorry to keep breaking up the quote here, but I want to make sure you hear why I'm using it in the first place. In chapter 11, this means that the promise of God's eschatological presence, what he's affirming here by measuring the temple, that he will be with his people in the end times, his promise of eschatological presence begins with the establishment of the Christian community. It began long ago with the promises of God to these people who bear his name and who have the seal of the living God on their foreheads. He goes on to say, the command to measure is to be viewed from God's perspective as representing a decree already enacted prior to the issuing of that command. So long before now, God has purposed to be present with and protect his people. Even before the church age began, Beale continues, God made a decree that secured the salvation of all people who would become genuine members of the church. Therefore, the measuring here has the same meaning as the sealing in chapter 7. 
God is saying, these are mine. You can't touch them. It's like the first round with Job. You can take away what surrounds him, but you can't touch him. Or the second round, you can touch him now, but you can't take his life. God sets the limits. He sets the parameters. And here in verses 1 and 2, he's setting the parameters. What's the bottom line? We are secure in our trust in Christ. There is nothing that will crowd in and take away our faith or our hope. So, with that clarity, what is this passage actually telling us? <laughs> Once again, that is not easy to say. This is one of, those, one of the most disputed chapters in this whole letter of Revelation. Perhaps even more than chapter 20 that talks about the millennium. There, is so, there are so many different ideas about this. Layer upon layer of Old Testament references and allusions. I don't even know how many references to the Old Testament are present here in Revelation 11. But they are many and varied and deep and rich. But at the heart of all of that, at the heart of that, it's not all that difficult to discern what this passage is actually telling us. Just before the sounding of the final trumpet, God promises to protect His people just as He did before the opening of the final seal back in chapter 7. He stopped and said, we're good, and then He continues. A bit of context. The word John used here for temple in verse 1 points to the temple building itself distinguished from the outer court. So this section that comes in under this title, this word, would, be, would include the holy of holies and the holy place, plus the courts of the priests of Israel and of the women. That much is encapsulated by the word that he used for temple here in verse 1. The outer court Verse 2 was that of the Gentiles, and then the city is beyond that court. From among those who dwell in proximity to the presence of God then, referring to the inhabitants of the holy city, so from among those and from among those who've perhaps skirted close to the edges of the people of God in that outer court of the temple, from among both of those groups, these are those, the ones inside that measured area, these are those, a faithful flock, a remnant of true believers who are being measured for the protecting presence of God for these horrific times that follow. I think that's what we're supposed to hear in this text. From among those who inhabit the holy city and who even have come close to the temple area, there's, a, there's a, a symbolic identification of a subset of those that are to receive this protection, and I believe that subset consists of all those who have trusted Christ as Savior, all who have the mark of the seal of the living God that we read about in chapter 7. They will know the protecting presence of God for these horrific times, these 42 months, he mentions in verse 2, a description that comes back in chapter 13, verse 5. For these 1260 days that the witnesses will prophesy, as he mentions in verse 3, a, a, a description that comes back again in chapter 12, verse 6. Since Daniel's day, and particularly Daniel's prophecy, chapter 9, verse 27, this period of time has, come, has become a virtual metaphor in Israel for life under oppression, for life in great tribulation. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. That was epitomized for them actually in an extra biblical experience when they were under the thumb of Greece and particularly Antiochus IV Epiphanes in 167 to 170 B.C., or 170 to 167 B.C., and the Maccabean Revolt. 
It's a, that's what has made it a metaphorical time period in Israel's history. This number will recur in varied forms several times over the next few chapters, this three-and-a-half-year period. But as a general category, it's a time during which you are under oppression. Here in chapter 11, this group that is under oppression as with the two multitudes that were actually one in chapter 7, I believe these worshipers in the temple who are being measured and who are enjoying this protection during this season, I believe they are the true church. The one new man of Ephesians chapter 2. Jew and Gentile alike who've trusted Christ as Savior. Several times in the New Testament, the church has been referred to by this same word that John uses here, the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Ephesians 2, 21. The church, the temple of God, is promised his protecting presence during this escalating season of three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, one, one more that we'll see, a time, times, and half a time. Great tribulation. So that's the measuring of the temple. And as you can see, when we spent that much time on two verses, what do we do with the rest of Revelation 11? I'm going to move a little more quickly now. But that gives a little taste of what it takes to work in this chapter and understand and appreciate what it's saying. We move on then to the ministry of the two witnesses. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, right on the heels of the 42 months. In other words, they will prophesy during this entire time, clothed in sackcloth the garb of prophets. Debate has raged for centuries over the identity of these two witnesses. I've even met several people in my life, more than two, who think they are one of the two witnesses. <laughs> are these two witnesses real people? Or do they symbolize something else, perhaps the church? Are they actually two ancient prophets returned to life? Why are there two? Questions abound and answers abound all the more. If you're interested in reading on this, I would suggest David Ani in the... Um, the word biblical commentary, he gives an extended survey. Beale does as well. There, there's several others that, that actually take the time to try to capture from history all the different, just viable options for understanding who these two are and for what's at stake, why it's such a compelling question. Let me just give you a few thoughts. There are likely two because the law requires at least two witnesses for any conviction, two or three. You hear that referenced at the trial of Jesus, but Deuteronomy 19, 15 sets that standard. I think it could be quite uh, could, that, that simple. From the miracles that are listed there in verses 4 through 6, these two witnesses resemble Moses and Elijah most, that's why they're often the favorites for understanding who these two are. Wielding fire, verse 5. Stopping the rain, verse 6. Turning water to blood and striking the earth with every kind of plague. Two from each. But is it Moses and Elijah? I don't know that we know that for certain. We can say, though, even if it's not Moses and Elijah in person, as happened at the transfiguration... These two will do the same work those two did in their respective days. They will be prophets bearing witness to the truth of God and to what salvation looks like in Him. 
But it's interesting. If this is Moses and Elijah in the ultimate pairing at the end of time, they will be coming back to bear witness to Jesus at this point. That would be interesting to hear. Jesus calls them my witnesses in verse 4. And so Moses and Elijah would be testifying to Christ explicitly at this point. And wouldn't that be interesting to hear? Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, I love that statement. All the way through Revelation, you run into these phrases that just underscore the fact that God is in complete sovereign control of absolutely everything that's happening. And this is one of those phrases. And when they had finished their testimony, so nothing, nothing will stop these guys prematurely. Nothing will stop this witness until God's appointed time. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. These two who can breathe fire and call down lightning from heaven, these two who can turn water to blood and strike the land with plagues and these two will be conquered and killed at some point, but not until they've finished their testimony. 1,260 days of it through the whole period of hardship. And this beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this is almost certainly the same beast that John will see rising out of the sea in chapter 13, verse 1. And this is his first appearance in the book of Revelation. This is the one whom John in his first letter called Antichrist, 1 John 2. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse referred to him as the abomination of desolation. Paul's description in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the man of lawlessness. For Daniel, he was the little horn, the one who grew up and displaced three of the ten horns on the head of the beast. The one who Daniel said in Daniel 7.25 will wear out the saints of the Most High. He will wear out the saints of the Most High. How long? For a time, times, and half a time. It's generally understood to be 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, Roughly, why it's said this way, nobody knows, right? But roughly a time, one year, times, two years, and a half a time, a half a year. One plus two plus a half is three and a half years. 42 months, 1260 days. This beast is putting to death the two witnesses who've finished their work. So they're done, but now that they're done, God himself has opened the way for them to be handled by this beast. And he puts them to death in the most demeaning way possible, verse 9, for three and a half days, echoing, I believe, the three and a half years. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, isn't that interesting, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So the godless nations will celebrate then this travesty by leaving their bodies in the streets, gazing upon them, and then the text says here in verse 10, treating it like Christmas, celebrating and exchanging gifts that finally... These witnesses are dead. You think there's opposition to the witness to Christ in our day, here, now, today? You think there are groups that love their sin so much that they hate the message of salvation in Christ? And we see it. We taste it already. They're going to be celebrating in the end times when perhaps the last two are finally put to death. We've won. We're free of this scourge and this bondage of talk about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how the world responds. 
this is how it will be in the end. But my friends, don't think for a moment that this isn't already how it is here and now, today. And how it has been, hear me on this, how it has been in every generation of the church since Jesus ascended back to the Father. It's been like this in every generation. You can read the history of the interpretation of the book of Revelation, and in every single generation, the church is saying, perhaps today, look at what's happening. This has been the story of the church throughout history, and it will continue to be the story of the church until the time that Christ finally comes, the time currently known only to the Father. Perhaps the biggest reason we don't know precisely who these two witnesses are is because they're different in each generation of the church. That might also be why we understand them as being the church, some subset of the church appointed to this very work. Some subset of the church right on up to the last when there will be these final two. You see, when you recognize that it's something that continues to happen through history, and that's the benefit of the apocalyptic, so that every generation of the church can identify and enter into this description together and see, wow, the Lord is at work. He's moving us toward His kingdom. We lose that if we think that this book is just about the final seven years of world history. We lose everything that comes prior to that and the two witnesses that arise again and again and again until the final two. We do know that there are many antichrists. It is so helpful that John has put that one in front of us in 1 John 2, 18. There are many antichrists. But John's not denying that there will be one final, ultimate one. In fact, that's what he's talking about in that passage. But boy, what help he's given us in understanding his own writing in Revelation. As with the Antichrist, so with the witnesses. They will come and come and come again, and then there will finally be an ultimate pairing. I just believe that's the way apocalyptic works. And just as there will be some from every tribe and language and people and nation who are ransomed for God by the work of Christ, chapter 5, verse 9, there will also be some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations who will gaze at the desecrated bodies of these martyred witnesses and refuse them a decent burial. But regardless... The two witnesses will be vindicated by resurrection, verse 11, as will all of God's people in the end. That's our promise. Thus, this also identifies these two witnesses with the church and her mission, her destiny. That's why the summary that we said of this chapter 11 is that the church hears that they are to continue bearing witness in the days of tribulation. We have to move on. Time is getting away from us. The sounding of the seventh trumpet, really the centerpiece of chapter 11, and we've left just a few moments for that. Now in what appears to be the middle of the current interlude, because the interlude continues on, I believe, through chapters 12 and 13 and 14 until we get to the seven bowls, in what appears to be roughly the middle of this interlude in the way John is telling this story, we read here in verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. This response lends much credence to the words of the angel back in chapter 10 that there will be no more delay. 
And there is no more delay. This reads with an air of finality, yes? Verse 16, 24 elders worship God with, with yet another hymn in this writing. Verse 17 saying, listen, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Notice, no longer includes and is to come because He just came. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. In chapter 1, verse 4, again in verse 8, in chapter 4, verse 8, we read of the one who was and who is and who is to come. But here we're introduced to just the one who was and who is. And when this formula returns again in chapter 16, it's in the same way. So from here on out, he's here. So we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. Sounds like final judgment on the nations, which we read about in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Continuing, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Sounds a lot like the resurrection of the righteous that we read about in chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Sounds a lot like the judgment of Satan and his armies in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. And by the way, if you're having a hard time writing these down and you want them, these notes will be online with the recording when that comes out, generally on Tuesday. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. That is a great description. We'll come back to it. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, sounding like the completion of the work that God started when the curtain of the temple was mysteriously torn in two when Jesus died, opening up the presence of God. This is a very similar kind of action. It's like the completion of that beginning point. Yet it still anticipates a time mentioned later in this book when His dwelling place will be with His people. Chapter 21, verse 3. And his dwelling place will be with his people in the city with no temple because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Chapter 21, verse 22. Chapter 11 here is looking ahead to the very end and putting this together in an encapsulated way, talking about the return of Christ. And the Ark of the Covenant will be seen within his temple. I believe confirming that this is the same God who's been working toward this moment ever since he first established his temporary dwelling among his people in a tabernacle. This is the same God. The Ark of the Covenant is right there. You wondered where it was? It's not in a warehouse near Washington, D.C. It's, it's right here, Revelation 11. And then there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. His judgment falls. This, this righteous, holy God vindicates the righteous and judges the wicked all at once. It, this is His presence. This is His presence that divides between those who believe and those who do not, those who are in the covenant and those who aren't. With the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the consummation of the kingdom of God has arrived. That's what we see here. With the sounding of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, the consummation of the kingdom has arrived. Strangely, there's 11 chapters left in this letter. We're only halfway through. 
But we're clearly hearing John describe the second coming of Jesus. And in terms that anticipate the the closing chapter of this book in virtually the same progression of events. This is one of the reasons it just doesn't work very well to try to chart this book or lay it out chronologically. It doesn't work like that. It's not really the way it progresses. From here to the end, we'll see recaps and replays of some things. We'll see deeper studies of other things. We'll see compressed sequences of judgment with more interludes of worship mixed in. And the metaphor we've used of a fireworks finale is a good image for what lies ahead between here and the end. We'll take that as it comes. But what is our takeaway this morning? What's our word of encouragement? Beyond just seeing yet another stunning manifestation of the fact that our God is sovereign over all things and nothing, not one thing, is out of his hands. And we do see that again right here. What else do we see that's an encouragement to take away this morning? My friends, I'd say that's what takes us back to verse 19. We see it in verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. We can get so concerned, even fearful, about the possible trials and tribulations and persecutions and suffering that mark the end of days. We can get so concerned, even so fearful about those, that we can can be reticent to echo the book's clear bottom line, which we sang together this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We can get so fearful of this book that we're not sure we want Him to come. That's not right. That's not right. Verse 19 gives us some help with that. Verse 19 can free us from that concern, free us from that fear by reminding us what this is all about. For those of us who are measured off with the temple and who are witnesses to the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, heaven opens for us. Heaven opens for us. That's good news, isn't it? The presence of God is our destiny. It's our inheritance. That which sustains us spiritually in our times of trial here and now in this broken and fallen world. That which thrills us in our times of worship. All of that will be our day by day, moment by moment experience forever and ever. When we have finished our testimony, When our sojourn in this world is complete, that's what awaits us. Heaven opens. So much horrific detail could have been given in the text here with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. But what we see is worship in heaven and the curtain of heaven drawn back. So we recognize What is our hope? 
I don't believe there could be any more encouraging takeaway than that this morning. Anything that allows God's people to say with a genuine longing in their hearts, come, Lord Jesus. I long to hear the trumpet. Heaven opens for us. This makes the God of heaven worthy of our enduring worship and obedience. And the best news of all in that observation is that he can actually bring it about within us. This hope, this freedom from fear that we long to experience isn't something we generate from within ourselves. It's the blessing of the very gospel that's being celebrated and consummated in this text of Scripture. This is our inheritance. It is our hope and it is our joy. And by the grace of God, we cannot only say, come Lord Jesus. We can actually live like we believe He's going to because that's His ministry in the lives of His children. Let's rejoice in that truth this morning. Pray with me, and as I pray, those who are going to help serve communion, please come, as well as the musicians. And folks, make no mistake, we are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes this morning. This celebration together is what the Lord Himself uses to strengthen us all to long for His coming to hope in His coming, and to affirm it joyfully together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time. Do Your work in our hearts, I pray, for Your glory. And remove whatever obstacles there may be in our hearts to the longing to see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, return in power and great glory, and to be caught up with Him together, to meet Him in the clouds and so to be with him forever. In his name we pray, amen.